Hello and welcome to this episode of GP Works, a podcast from the Irish College of General Practitioners. My name is Joe Gallagher, I'm a GP in Goring County, Wexford and the ICGP Clinical Lead for Cardiovascular Disease. Today we're very fortunate to have with us Tom Bresch, a Professor of General Practice at the University of Notre Dame in Western Australia and a Mayo man. So welcome Tom. Thank you Joe. Great Tom, to be here. Yeah. We're, we're talking from afar, Tom, but uh, you know, at so far the technology is holding up well, so hopefully it will for the rest of this. Tom's going to talk today about his career and his great work in familial hypercholesterolemia, a condition he's conducted significant research on. Tom, you might tell us first a bit about yourself, where you're from originally, and, and what path has your career followed to date? Well, I think you've given the, the answer yourself. I mean, I'm originally from County Mayo. I went to college in Bowie. Actually, I did an arts degree. Um, master's degree in sociology, I did five years, and then I switched over to medicine. So it was one of these four-year courses at that time. So um, I was very valuable for playing any type of sport that was going bar hurling. <laughs> I was around for 11 years. I, was, um, I spread through a lot of Irish internationals that came to ECG or IG at the time. Very good. So, um, yeah. so after that, um, I did most of my, after graduating, I did most of my work in uh, Castlebar, mainly in Galway, regional in Merlin Park, and also Ballinscope for obstetrics. And um, because there was no actual, well, there's very few training positions at that time, I ended up doing one year um, GP training year at the University of Manchester, which was very good. And while I was there, I decided I was looking around for positions and they were pretty hopeless to get work at that time. So I ended up, I thought I'd go to Australia for a year. So I ended up taking a job in um, Victoria. And um, while I was there, I was there um, for about three and a half years. And I was, uh, always remember the time I arrived with the time that, John Tracy was winning his silver medal in Los Angeles. So that was 1984, so you can date me to that. <laughs> so um, I, I worked in the hospital there for about four years, doing mainly rotations because I had most of my training done. But I was asked then if I'd be willing to go and work in some of the small towns around that were lacking in a hospital. So I took on a position in the Goldfields area of Victoria in a small country town and with a 19-bed hospital. So I was there for about three and a half years, which was a tremendous experience. The only trouble was it was very hard on call work and you could be out playing golf and you'd see a car coming you knew well who they were coming for and you know it was but it was good experience so in 1988 i moved to perth and i've been here actually just 30 years now and i bought a practice probably after i was here about a month and i've still you know developed that and worked in that and went from a, a one-man show to a two-person show to gradually now it's there's probably about eight or nine doctors in it and a purpose-built surgery I, I work there now, so I'm, I'm an employee rather than the employer. But about 14 years ago, the University of Notre Dame, um, was they established there, essentially Notre Dame Australia is an independent from the American school, which is the first school, first universities of the Notre Dame banner that ever had a medical school for graduate entry. And I've been there ever since. So I was offered the position of running the GP and private healthcare research unit. So I've been the director of that in that time for my sins. So um, that's what I've been doing. I'm still doing practicing two days a week and working clinical two days a week and trying to do as little as I can after that. <laughs> Sounds like it's pretty full, Tom, to be honest. You don't have as much time to do very little after all of that time. And, and you've had obviously a lot of experience in general practice in Australia, Tom. I suppose from my perspective, how is general practice structured in Australia? Do practice tend to be large or small or how, how, what's the structure there? Well, I mean, in the 30 years, 34 years I've been working in here in Australia, it has changed quite a bit gone from a lot of, well, really it's probably seen almost a total demise of the single um, one-man show, um, like to bigger practices, group practices, and more primary care teams. 
And um, I suppose the, the great thing about, or I liked about um, Australia with working was one, it gave you the opportunity to work if you were willing to work. Right. Also the access like to doing some specialist services, you know, like getting radiology, getting imaging, getting bloods, um, was, and getting access to specialists was quite good as well. You can, you know, if you push hard, you can advocate for your patients and almost get them seen and done in the day. You can get bloods done in the day and have that results, you know, within a couple of hours. So in that regard, it's very good. Yes. Um, I suppose everybody gets frustrated with bureaucracy no matter how it is and you don't get paid as much, you know, after hours work and all that type of stuff. But, um, you know, it, it has been good. Um, you know, certainly it's not a bad model. It's a mixed model, say, um, you know, there's private and public in it. It's, it's not, uh, there's no list system here. Okay. Um, there's an item of service payments. Then you also get some additional services for doing things like, um, say care plans for people with complex diseases. Yes. And um, I've been trying to convince all my colleagues, and of course now I think I've more or less done that, is that FH is, is a complex condition that's hereditary and is present all your life. And the consequences they're not looking after well it can be premature um, death or angina or some major event in the 50s for a male or the 60s for a female. So it, it is significant. Yeah, and I, I think that that brings us nicely on to the sort of the clinical topic we were going to talk about, Tom, with you know, familial hypercholesterolemia, because you've done a huge amount of work in it. And so it's something that we don't have much awareness of, I think, in general practice. You might just, you know, what, what exactly is it and, and, you know, why is it important? Well, I suppose, I mean, I wouldn't, I'd never be too apologetic about um, us not knowing a lot about it. I mean, basically the whole world knew back in the decades and decades ago that there were conditions with very high cholesterol around um, and why it was happening was not understood. It was only in 1973 that significant breakthrough was made. So that's not a long time ago. I think I was probably just about starting my ambition to change the medicine at the time. So um, I think Brown and Goldstein um, made the discovery that it was the faulty LDL receptors. And that instead of being the, these cells in the liver to being able to take out the bad cholesterol, the LDL um, C receptor, or the LDL C out of the blood, there's, it wasn't the image of this, and instead these people ended up with high circulating things. These um, Brown and Goldstein, you know, went on and got the Nobel Prize for this discovery in 1985, and made a huge difference in the our understanding of um, cardiovascular disease caused by high cholesterol and cholesterol metabolism. Um, so it's basically, as I said, like a fault in the LDL receptor and. One thing about them that's significant to know is that the condition itself is hereditary. It's autosomal dominant. There's almost universal penetrance. So basically, if one of your parents have it, I mean, half the children will have it. And, um, and you know, then as you go down, like, spread it out, like, down to second-degree relatives, grandchildren, like, you know, one in four of them will have it as well. So it's, it's, um, it's the condition that's present and is present from birth. So the cholesterol burden, uh, the burden of having high cholesterol, the bad cholesterol, LDLC, is present from birth. So it's not something that can be improved by diet. Diet and lack of exercise will make it worse, but relying on diet solo to manage it was just futile. And um, I just should mention here as well, a lot of people, and I'm probably getting into the technical side, but one of the things that I think the nice um, guidelines and all the guidelines of the European Consensus Panels and the International FH Foundation all have stressed that the use of um, cardiovascular risk calculators based on the Framingham study are not suitable for use in FH 
mainly because the relative risk from FH as a hereditary condition with high cholesterol, LDLC present from birth is so enormous that it just makes them inoperable. But some people, and I've seen it you know, happening myself, people do still apply it. And in a young person, without any other risk factors, it might give you a false sense of security. What you really need to appreciate is that if you see somebody with an LDL of um, you know, 6.5 or above 5, or a total cholesterol above 7.5 or above 9, these guys you should really think seriously could have FH. And especially if there's a family history of premature cardiovascular disease in the a young parent or an uncle um, under 55, or if they themselves have developed some, um, you know, early angina symptoms, you could really think about this because these are the guys that will have it. Or if you can find any the physical stigmata of it, mind you, there I've never seen the tendon xanthoma in my practice or in any of the patients I've seen myself in other patient practices. But if you get a tendon xanthoma or a corneal arcus in a young person under 45 these guys should be, um, you know, should look more seriously. Xanthalasma are probably more indicative of high cholesterol rather than um, FH, but, you know, it could be a point or two just to, um, you know, make you aware of it. Because, I mean, they, the whole problem with FH basically is that there's a lack of not only just patient and family awareness about it, there's also professional lack of awareness. Many families will know that in their family or friends, who have a succession of young people dying in their 40s from cardiovascular disease. But you know, whether they're all targeted for FH, you know, is a mute point. People come into coronary care units, and because these units are often very busy and they're dealing with the acute event, and because there's pressure on bed space, people often get discharged from hospital and don't get FH investigated, or the cardiologist or the doctor don't think about FH as being a possibility. So there's the opportunity for missing them. The other thing in primary care is because of competing pathologies, and most of you will know that we've done lots of research in ourselves looking at the problem with multimorbidity in practices. That um, you know, people come in with about you know 10 or 15 different conditions. They may be slightly related, may be totally unrelated, but they have other GPs can be extremely busy dealing with a myriad of other conditions and may not have the time to spend, you know, looking up all the intricacies of the Dutch lipid score and, you know, encourage them to get on it, on, you know, medications and statins and trying to bring them back and follow them up. So there's lots of, lots of potential um, um, barriers to jump. And the other thing you need to be aware about is you need to be careful too with possible other conditions that may um, contribute to a high cholesterol, say like people with um, cholestasis or liver disease, um, renal disease, hypothyroidism, steroid use, or even diabetics. They kind of tricky um, types of um, pictures that may need to exclude these other secondary causes that might give you a high cholesterol. Sorry, that's a long-winded answer. No, it's great, Tom. I think it's a really valuable point about the risk scores because there's a lot of talk about risk scores and we use them a lot, but I think you just said that younger people will always score low risk on these no matter what their their value is. And I suppose practically if someone does come in and they're in their 40s and they come back, you know, they come in for the usual checkup and the reality of the six, is, you know, and you mentioned the Dutch lipid score there, you know, how, how should we approach someone like that? A 40-year-old comes in, their LDL comes back at six and a routine checkup. What would you do with them in practice if they come into you? 
Well, I think it should open your eyes when you see an LDL of energy about five, because you know that they at least get a three on the Dutch lipid score. I mean, if you take a good history from them then, and you know, just inquire about, you know, if they're, you say they're over 40, if they're over 40, well, they themselves will have 40 years of cholesterol burden accumulated. Now, if they have a family history of it as well, they may have a parent, like a father, um, a mother who may have had an event um, in their 50s or female in their 60s, or, you know, there may be an uncle, other people around who have had this. So, you know, if, if that happens and say themselves, they have some angina, they've had something, some event happening, well, they get a two or if their father has it, well, that gives them three for your blood for the LDL above, above five. Then you get two for a personal history of premature cardiovascular disease and one for a parent having it as well. So that gives you a six. So that's a probable FH. So that's a phenotypic diagnosis. Yeah. So, so, you, sorry, go ahead, Tom. Yeah, what you need to be careful about sometimes is that when you do blood levels on people, that if they're on a statin, it may mask their level of what they would be if they were untreated. Now, there are some, um, there are um, things that we get annoyed if you were on, say, 20 milligrams of robostatin. Uh, you need to multiply, I think, the untreated amount by 2.1. They're doing this from memory now. Sorry if I get it wrong. And I think if they're on 40 milligrams of robostatin, you multiply by 2.4, 2.8. And similarly, if you're on, say, a torvastatin, I think you multiply by about two as well. You can get these things online. I mean, my memory is, my age is getting worse. But, I mean, you, you need to be careful at times that, you know, that if somebody is on a statin, that it is masking a much higher, like, say, if your level, say, was, um, if your level was, um, say, 3.6, if your level was 4.1 or 4.2, just make it interesting, 4.3, and um, you were on 20 milligrams of Crestor, and you multiply that by 2.1, well, you immediately get up to 8.6, which gives yes. you an 8, very definite. And I mean, you wouldn't think about that at the time. It looks normal. Yes. It looks relatively normal. But, you know, it's, it's just that ability at times to think, well, there is this pattern here. This level is high. Um, could you find out another stage, like when they had other bloods done, and what was their highest LDL ever recorded? And if you find something that's up around six, seven, certainly if you ever find it in a child-like levels of around over five, but immediately it should start thinking that this is highly unusual um, in a younger person. Sorry, now, I might not be explaining that too well. No, no, it sounds really good, Tom. And I suppose really, I suppose with that, it's, it's, it's really not to use the risk calculators because they may not be valid. Mm -hmm. This Dutch Lipid Clinic score, which is freely available online, to use that as a tool to try and, and, and score them, mm -hmm. and and then you know, in particularly inquire about family history and look for those physical stigmata is is mm -hmm. is key in, in, in this group. You know, I've heard before people talking about genetic FH and phenotypic FH. Could you could you tell us what what's the difference or what 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 are they? Well, in the past, the phenotype was the you know the characteristics um, showing the, you know the characteristics that you might have FH. Um, in you know, in your you might have inherited this condition, um, whereas the genetic is the DNA expression of it, you know, where you do the DNA sequencing, and there's all these new things, new generation sequencing they have, like to do um, panels of um, of the DNA, which like shows you like where the mutations. So you're really looking for any major mutation in the LDL or receptor. Um, so that's what the genetic thing is looking for. Now, the problem with it is that you get, um, 
most of the people with um, mutational diagnosis and a phenotypic diagnosis overlap. But at each edge, like you can have about 30 or 40% of people um, who have a phenotypic diagnosis don't have a mutation. But at the other end, you have people with a um, mutational diagnosis don't reach a sixth on their phenotype either. So there's that kind of, and it probably gets worse the more LDL receptor um, abnormalities, mutations that are found. Currently, there's over 2,000 um, diagnosed. And um, so it's, 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 it's not the easiest field to be in. Like countries like the UK only make a diagnosis on FH if you have a mutational, mutation positive. They classify anybody else with a phenotypic but not a mutation as being polygenic hypercholesterolemia. And they recognize that there are differences between them and that some, you know, will probably be equally just as much needing treatment or probably more treatment. But that's the road they've taken. In Australia, because of our, well, it's a vast continent with a small population, um, it is harder to do genetic studies on everybody or to give equality and access to so like So really, in effect, you only end up with about three or four major centers. And I think Perth, Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane are the only ones that have that access at the moment. But if you live, say, out in the middle of the Northern Territory or the middle of Western Australia, I mean, it would be hard to, to get equality and access to it. So, it's, um, so the phenotype um, is still worthwhile, and it's what they use in America, right. and they use it in Europe as well. Like, they don't do genetic testing in the States. Okay. It's really interesting, actually, because there was a lot of talk about genetic testing, but as you said, often the, the phenotype expresses and with so many mutations, it must be very difficult yeah. to try and identify them all. Yeah, the, just coming back to one point there, Joe, what would be very valuable, though, is that if you do find somebody that has a, a very strong um, phenotype, and you think, you know, they're most likely to have it, um, a lot of the major centers now would like to do genetic testing as well on them. Okay. Because if they're going to do cascade testing, that makes it very valuable if they're proven mutation, because then you can really try and do it. The reason that the Dutch was so successful, they got about 71% done, is that Dutch population, you know, Holland is about the size of Munster, right. or half, two thirds the size of Tasmania. They've got 17 million, Australia's got 24 million. Right. But um, the, um, Holland is not. 0.5 the size of Australia, <laughs> so it's you know it's 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 huge. Like to think that there are 17 million in um, in the Netherlands, but it's easy to do cascade screening if you use a grid system and they use genetic field workers. They did that for for um, 20 years between 1994 and 2014, and they had a huge success with it because they were dedicated to do this, to go out and do them, you know, approach them and see if they're willing like to have the test done. But even doing that. The most likely, you know, the thing you should get about up to two to four people per index case of a cascade screen, but in effect, like people are only getting about two. Right. Wow. So, so there are. It's not an. It's not easy as it looks at times because you know you're up against family dynamics and you're, with, you know, with say countries like Australia with a lot of inward migration. You know, it's very hard to do cascade testing on people for their all the first degree relatives live in the Ireland, the UK, New Zealand, the South Sea Islands. You know, so we've got to be pragmatic in primary care. 
Absolutely, I think that's the, that's the real key. And I, I just wonder, your know, screening in, in general, is, is there good evidence for screening? You mentioned about Holland there and, and, and other countries. You know, is it important if you do find someone who has it? Is, is it important for other family members as treating this early have any difference? I will remember, like, I mean, the FH meets all of the World Health Organization criteria for a useful screening thing. It's one of the, and it's one of the commonest genetic inheritance disorders going, you know, so it's, it's really worthwhile doing it. And um, the, sorry, the second part of your question was? You know, in terms of, of finding someone early, does it make much yeah. difference if you, if you find them early? Yeah, well, the idea is time, if you want to find, because it's present from birth, the idea is time to say to do it is by age 10, because then you can treat them and they load their statin for life and you can introduce the topics with parents and try and get them on that trajectory of no smoking, good diet, exercise, but taking a load of statin. The other one that has been mentioned as a possible way of doing it is, I'm not sure if some of you will be familiar with Wald's study in 92 practices in the UK, where the targeted GP is there, like to see if they're willing to have approached the parents of um, 10,000 kids um, um, to see if they would get screened as part of their routine um, testing for uh, immunizations at age one to two years. And amazingly, 84% of them agreed to it. Oh. And out of the 10,000, they picked up 40 toddlers who had FH. And because they FH, had FH, they had to get one and two from their parents. So one of the parents had to have it. So they yes. picked up 40 parents as well. So this is recognized as being a huge success. And most people said, oh, you can't do this. This is wrong. It's not. But most people actually, 84% of the parents readily agreed. And it's looked upon as being surprisingly a good method. And with that, Tom, was it that done through sort of with toddlers? Was it a, a sort of a, a finger prick? Or how, how did yeah. they actually do yeah, that? Just a, just a heel prick. Heel prick. Okay. Yep. And, and was that done on genetics then or, or on LDL? How did they screen? Yeah, they screened them for, first of all, for the LDL. And then they took two samples, one just to do the LDL. And then they pro if it was above a certain parameter, and I can't remember now the definite level, they progressed into doing the second sample to do the genetic testing on that. And, and, and you know, I think it's really interesting that treating someone so young has such an impact. And I, I'm just struck that it obviously has implications, particularly for for women in terms of pregnancy. What practically what do you do if someone is started so young and someone like a statin and then comes in at the age of 22 and says, "I want to get pregnant"? Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, yeah. Well, obviously, I mean, as you know, I mean, you can't use a statin in pregnancy. I mean, so if, if you um, know you are going to get pregnant and you want to avoid getting pregnancy, so I mean, the thing is to, to come off the statin three months in advance. Okay. I think if you do this uh, inadvertently get pregnant while you're on it, I mean, the idea is then like to stop it straight away. Okay. Um, but, I mean, they, yeah, I mean, and the, the other thing is like, once you are diagnosed with it, it's important, I think, and I think that would happen, is that such patients would always have specialist involvement and specialist involvement from people with an interest and a skill in management of, of um, you know, FH. That's right. What are the treatments for FH, Tom? You know, how, how do you actually approach it? Well, I mean, the, the key to treatment at the moment is, is probably starting with a, if someone is definitely diagnosed with FH, the, the, the advice is in an adult is to use maximally tolerated statins because that's the, the drug with the most evidence across all the studies that have been done. And there have been adult studies, there's not much studies done in children, but I don't think there's really any study done on children compared to the amount done on adults, but this is where most of the evidence comes from, is that there's people who are treated with this, um, in effect, there's 
Kaplan Meyer curves like show that instead of you know all falling off the planet very early, their actual survival is almost on a par with those who don't have the condition. You know, which mimics the what we were showing, you know, the way the survival goes with the, that earlier study of uh, cholesterol burden. Yes. Uh, and in Australia, if you run into trouble with them with one statin, it's probably best to either drop it down or else try another one. And if, say, a couple fail, you could try adding on ezetimibe. The whole aim of treatment is to lower the cholesterol level. And a good um, um, rule of thumb is to reduce it by at least 50%. In effect, like what you would like to do with it, if it's younger children, um, or say children over 10, like before they're adults, get it down under 3.5 millimoles. Adults get it down under 2.5. But if they have symptomatic um, um, cardiovascular disease or diabetic, you want to get them down under 1.8 millimoles per liter. So that would be the approach. Now, you will get people, obviously, who, and I mean, they're the bane of your life if you're a treating physician and people don't want to go on statins or, you know, you get people who are very much into alternative health and they don't want to do this. So it can be very difficult to manage, but you need to try and work with people, you know, to see, you know, to explain the nature of the condition, why it needs to be treated, that it is hereditary, it's not lifestyle. And, you know, they may all come back and say, oh, I want to give it a go. And I say, well, you know, it's true, you do need to give it a go, but you need to realize that the danger you run with leaving it longer is that your cholesterol plaque burden will continue to be, you know, laid down and your risk of atherosclerosis will increase. Um, they, for those who are on the, especially the homozygous, there are some newer treatments like the, you remember there, and the slides like of the different type of receptors, these 20 and the PCSK9 inhibitors. Some of that treatment now, and I think there's some new drugs just come on stream here in Australia and overseas called Repatha. I think it's made by Amgen. So that is very, very effective, but it's very expensive at the moment. But they're thinking that a lot of this newer type medication, really, they're really very effective and they can reduce, um, you know, LDL levels by 50 to 70 percent, you know, at times. So really, Tom, with, with FH, it's not so much as a different type of LDL, it's the length of time you're exposed to this high burden. That's the main difference, am I right in saying that? Well, it's, it's the faulty receptor. It's not okay. able to take out, it's not able to take out the LDL to send it back to the, you know, take it up to the cells into the liver, like so it goes to the lysosomes and the endosomes and they get, break it down and get rid of it and recycle it. It's not okay. able to do that. Okay. So it's basically that it stays in the bloodstream all the time. Okay. And, and that's going on from birth, really. It's right, right yeah. from childhood, as you're saying. It's, it's yeah. going on. And it, it, so you're fine, like, when you're young, and it's, even if you pick it up at age two, like, you may not put kids on, like, they're age 10, which you probably wouldn't do it. What you can do is institute the very good lifestyle practices. And then you might find that they often do is that the children's bloods are actually much better because they're living in the shadow of the parents, like, who have now developed good lifestyle, and they manage it much better. But that's the... That's the hope to be... Um, for it all. I mean, I expected that a lot more drugs will come on the market down the track. There's, there's a lot of work going into this area because it's very, very expensive, and these people die young, and this, you know, quality of life is affected. And, yeah. and how is FH managed in Australia at the moment? What approach is taken? Well, at the moment, the reason one of the reasons we got involved in it is we were approached um, really by the state government in Western Australia to see if we would undertake doing some trials to see whether practices could try. Oh, we originally got some funding to do the try out our extraction tool to see if it worked in our practice and you know we proved that that was quite effective and efficient and you know that it 
could do the work in um, 10 minutes. There's a manual um, extraction of the same information by D took 60 hours to do. So it really was very cost effective. So you can screen like the best numbers of patients. And if you had 20,000, it'll tell you in two minutes who you need to look at. So instead of looking at 20,000, you might tell you uh, there's 150 patients here you could look at. But once you go through the notes, you'll probably you know, be able to you know, decide that two thirds of those probably won't ever meet the criteria. So concentrate on the ones at the high risk and work your way down through it. So it, at the moment, then, like what we've been doing then is applying this model in a model of care, like for primary care is to use the extraction tool in the practices, invite the patients in, do a phenotypic assessment, you know, decide if they are in, if they are in, get consent in the study, put them on the treatment, bring them back to the bloods and follow them up for 12 or 18 months and see, you know, what the outcomes are. The aim being to reduce their LDL by at least 50% or else get them down to target and then ensure that they don't smoke a good lifestyle, don't have fat. And this is the approach we're trying to use, but it's not universal. It's just this is, this is new, new work we're doing. We're hoping that, well, this, the software partner um, has been very helpful in refining the work that we did, the first, you know, rougher version of it. But it has, they liked it very much. And they said, this was just tremendous. And, you know, the fact that it works so well. So we're hoping that down the track, we're not, um, you know, we're offering it to them, like if they would put it on the software once the study is done. So hopefully that may happen. Excellent. And, and Tom, obviously FH is a big, big focus of yours, but is there other research you're undertaking at the moment in the other areas? Oh, no, well, I, I think I mentioned it um, you know, earlier on, like the, um, we have done a lot of work on multimorbidity, which is, you know, the coexistence of two or more chronic diseases in the one patient, which, as you know, as you get older, as we all get older, we're all multimorbid. And um, we did, first study we did was, we did about four or 5,000 patients, which across two practices. And we looked, uh, used a cumulative illness rating scale, which is um, one from Canada, Martin Fortune's team had, who was the original guru in this area. So we applied that to um, two regular practices. We also applied the same thing to the Fremantle Street Doctor, which is um, a street service, street-based service for um, you know disadvantaged people and people on the street here in Fremantle. We did that over about well, probably the best part of ten years. We reviewed their notes, and we also did the same thing in um, in a methadone clinic in a practice in Mandurah. But basically, like it's, most people go through your life, there's very little wrong with you when you're young. But when you get to your forties or fifties, something starts to go wrong. So you develop this type of a an S-shaped curve, and then when you get up in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you tend to plateau again and fall off the perch. But when you are at a disadvantaged community, all this S-shaped curve of their the prevalence, and as regards age, like moves to the left, so people get these um, conditions much earlier and move to the right. We've also done work on um, the Fremantle Primary Prevention Study, which again, which actually used the absolute risk calculation for that. Um, so that was one of the ones we did. But we've done some work on um, across different areas like workforce issues. We did um, well, a review article on functional abdominal pain. Um, I did that a few years ago. It was published in the British Journal of General Practice, which is actually quite useful and has been very useful to practice nurses and um, various schools here. Um, so that's the type of work we'll be doing. We're actually more broadening a bit at the moment into broader use of cardiovascular risk assessment. Um, tools like to approach in general practice. I think the whole idea is to try and minimize extra workloads and practices, but get them to see value in the work that they can do. That there's no reason why you couldn't manage FH in your own practice. You still will need specialist help for um, complex and you know hard to manage patients, but a lot of the stuff is very straightforward. And you know, it, it's actually um, 
very doable stuff. And it adds value to your practice. And it also involves other members of the primary care team, and that's your practice nurse and your dietitian or um, podiatrist, um, clinical psychologist, if, if you have such people in your practice. I mean, these add value like to your practice and, you know, make, say, well, reduce the burden on the dear medicine, which is in the hospitals. Excellent, Tom. Listen, thanks so much for such a wide-ranging overview of your career and familiar hypercholesteremia and the many topics you're covering, a true general practice focus on your research. And it's uh, great to talk to you. That's very good. I'm delighted to do it. I hope it's valuable. And, you know, if people want to ever, you know, have any interest in it, I mean, the articles are there. And if the article on the, the webinar is, is an article, that I think that's freely available. So most of the references are in the reference section. I think there's about 90 of them there. So it's plenty of reading. Absolutely. Keep this all going. I'll certainly put links to all of those with that as well. Thanks very much, Tom. Okay, Joe. Thanks a minute. Thanks for having me.